you for listening to this podcasted message from the Garden Fellowship. The Garden Fellowship is a new and exciting church located in Burlington, North Carolina. And we invite you to learn more about our church by visiting our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Garden Fellowship or by visiting our website at gardenfellowship.org. Now, we invite you to worship God through the teaching of His Word. Who can tell me who these people are and what their claim to fame is? If you, if you know who they are, then you need a life. So, uh, you know, I do know who they are. You know who they are? Yeah, I can't. Yeah, their names are Michael and Tarek Shalahi. Shalahi. Yeah. Do, you, do you know what their claim to fame was? Were they the party crashers? Yes, yeah. they were the White House party crashers. Remember that? Back in 2009, Obama was just elected in his first term, and it was the first White House dinner, and it was a big to-do how they weren't on the guest list, weren't supposed to be there, but they boldly... Went right in and rubbed elbows with everybody all night. Took their picture with Joe Biden and Rahm Emanuel and everything. And it was a big story. You guys remember that? Um, I I was wondering when I heard about that, what it must have been like for them to be there. And if anybody knew that they weren't supposed to be there. If you've ever, you know, you had that experience maybe where you're at a social gathering or you're at a party and there's one person particularly like a wedding, okay, weddings where two families come together and there's always that one crazy uncle that everybody's like, we kind of wish he wasn't here sort of thing. If you can relate to that experience of being at a social gathering or a party and there's one person there that just doesn't seem to fit, or maybe uh, sort of turn the tables if you've ever had the experience of being at a party in which you felt like you didn't belong that maybe you went to the wrong place or, you know, the uh, proverbial, uh, your friends told you it was a costume party and it wasn't a costume party kind of thing, and you show up at this social gathering and you're just really awkward and really out of place. If you can relate to that and sort of put that in the back of your mind, Jesus, in our story today, is at a party. And um, so what may be surprising to us, Jesus was not a party pooper. He's all over the gospel. He's found in... Parties and social gatherings and social meals. Um, he's very, uh, very much in the social scene at times. He often says things and does things that create quite a stir. But he's once again at a party. And Luke chapter 14 is where we are, by the way. He's at this gathering and he's going to notice some things about the people at this party. He's going to notice some of the ways that they treat the Lord's Day. He's going to notice some things about how. Uh, they act within the party and how uh, they are sort of jockeying for position. And he's also going to notice some things about who's there and who's been invited. He's going to make some observations. He's being watched. He's being judged. But he's also watching the people at the gathering. He's going to say some things that are rather radical. And this is going to give Jesus a setting. It's going to give him uh, an occasion to give us some teaching about our hearts this morning. So... Luke chapter 14 is where we are. Let's begin by reading. Now, this is a lengthy section, and we'll notice that if you look in your Bible, we're going to go down through verse 24. If you'll notice that passage of Scripture, your Bible probably divides it into three different subheadings. All of this takes place in the same occasion, the same sitting, 
um, the same meal. The first little section is going to set the scene for us. We're going to have yet again another one of those healing on the Sabbath controversies. And that's going to set the stage for Jesus to tell then three parables to follow that. So all this section doesn't teach one lesson, but it really does go together. So we're going to make all of this one message. It'll be a little bit lengthy uh, in the amount of scripture that we're covering. But I think that you'll see that this all really does belong together. So let's read beginning from verse 1 down through verse 24. Beginning from verse 1, one Sabbath, he went, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who had reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once, lived, once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for, all, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I will go and examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, we have com we ha what you have commanded has been done. And still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. So we can see from the lengthy section that the first sort of paragraph sets the scene. The first scene takes place as, once again, there is a Sabbath occasion and Jesus decides to do some healing on the Sabbath. So beginning from verse 14, uh, we read that one Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. So he goes here on a Sabbath, and he's dining at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. And um, one thing that struck me as I was thinking through this, in order for Jesus and this party of people to be dining at the house of the ruler of the Pharisees, on a Sabbath, 
somebody has to be working. So it, the whole thing just sort of starts out on a note of hypocrisy because the whole passage is going to be really is going, to, going to hinge on what the Pharisees say can be done and not be done on the Sabbath, what will constitute work. I just find it ironic that they do all of this in the setting um, in which they're being served a meal. Uh, certainly the meal could not have been completely be prepared the day before. Maybe the food was prepared, but it has to be served. And dishes have to be cleaned and put out and taken away. So the whole thing begins, in my view, with a with an air of hypocrisy about it. But verse 2, And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. So we take for granted that the person with dropsy is not part of the invited guest. So what's going on is in those days when um, they would have a meal such as this, it wasn't just a social event. It was also a social event and an intellectual event. They would, um, for instance, they would, they would invite, uh, they would have a meal and they would serve the meal and they would invite a lot of uh, distinguished people, rabbis, uh, scribes or Pharisees, a lot of distinguished people. And two things were going on. One is that there was this high-level social interaction, but also the, the, the point was that there was this intellectual conversation that took place. There was questions. People would ask one another questions, deep, thoughtful questions, and they would hear their answers, and they would sort of dialogue back and forth. But all this was done for an audience. Now, the audience wasn't invited, but the, the home was sort of opened to the public, and the room would have... Uh, in the center of the room, there would be the, the table in which the eating was done. But then around the edges of the room, people could just come in off the streets and gather. And the purpose was they wouldn't be fed, but the purpose was that they would listen to the conversation. And it was sort of entertaining and enlightening to listen to these intellectual people dialogue and question one another. Uh, we find often in the Gospels that Jesus is asked theological questions at a meal. And that's kind of what's going on. Is There's this meal and Jesus would have been invited and someone has probably even prepared a question ahead of time to ask of Jesus, to hear his answer. And people are there hearing this and listening. Remember the home of Simon when the, the, uh, the woman who's forgiven of many sins is crying and wiping Jesus' feet. But Simon is offended. And it's not because she wasn't one of his invited guests. She was one of the people there that was part of the public that was just there listening. So that's what's going on the man with the dropsy is here. Um, and Jesus, verse 3 says, responded to the lawyers and Pharisees. Now, Luke doesn't record that they asked a question, but Jesus responded. So we don't know if he knows their thoughts and is just responding to their thoughts or whether there was a question that Luke doesn't record. But in any case, Jesus presses the issue. He presses. He's the one that brings up this healing on the Sabbath issue. And he asked the question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not. Uh, we remember from previously chapter 13, we spent a little bit of time talking about another instance in which Jesus healed on the Sabbath. And remember the whole, sort of the, the whole teaching around that, that here's these Pharisees, the self-righteousness of the Pharisees, and they are oftentimes angered when Jesus will heal, specifically when he'll heal on the Sabbath. And part of what was behind that was the fact that these their self-righteousness is a, comparative self-righteousness. They are righteous in their own eyes only by comparing themselves to others who are unrighteous in their own eyes. 
And in Jesus' day, of course, it was widely, widely regarded that someone with sickness or health problems or uh, leprosy or demon-possessed or all kinds of physical ailments like that was an indication of God's disfavor or God's judgment. And so the Pharisees, when they would see Jesus heal these people on the Sabbath, for them it was, for one thing, it was taking away these people, these sinners that the Pharisees needed to be contrasted against. In other words, if everyone was as holy as the Pharisees, then they didn't look very holy. They needed sinners. They needed cripples. and They needed lepers around to illustrate their own, their own holiness or their own supposed holiness. So as Jesus heals these people, it angers them. All that's in the back of our mind as we read this. Jesus presses the question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Verse 4, but they remained silent. They didn't answer him. And the reason they don't answer him is because there is no scriptural answer that they can give him. They don't want to say, yes, it's lawful to heal on the Sabbath because they don't want him to heal. They can't say no because there is absolutely no scriptural backing for that whatsoever. So they remain silent, which is a reminder for us also that when we have things to speak into other people's lives, the only thing that we have to say into other people's lives are those things that Scripture teaches us. The only things that we have to say are those principles in which we can ground in Scripture and see here's a principle found in Scripture that applies to your life and your situation in this way. Oftentimes, we, we see people make decisions and choices in their life, and, and we think, I don't think I would have done that. But unless we can ground that in the principles taught in Scripture, then we have no place to speak that into their lives. So here's the Pharisees. They understand there is no scriptural backing whatsoever for this no healing on the Sabbath thing, so they keep silent. They remained silent, and then he took him and healed him and sent him away. Then verse 5, And so he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And again, they don't reply. So the first time, they couldn't reply because there was no scriptural backing whatsoever. Now, Jesus puts it to them a different way. Which of you, whose son falls in a well, won't pull him out on a Sabbath day? Or which of you has, who has an ox that falls into a well won't pull it out on the Sabbath day? So he, he appeals to their love. He appeals to their greed. And he says, which of you would not do this deed on a Sabbath day? And here they, they don't have an answer for him again because their hearts convict them this time. They, they know that, that if their son fell into a well, they would pull him out. So they don't answer him. So now Jesus has sort of set, the, or, or Luke rather, has set, set the scene for us for these three parables that Jesus is going to tell. Because he's now, he's observed, as they've been observing him, he's observed their hearts. He's observed how they treat the Lord's day. He's observed how they interact with each other. He's observed who's here, who's invited. And now he's seen some insight into their hearts, and he's now going to tell these three parables. And this is where we'll spend most of our time. So now verse 7, he told a parable to those who were invited. So he's not speaking to the people around the edges of the room who were just listening. He's speaking to the invited guests now. He told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. The setting would be something like this. The table would have been like a large horseshoe-shaped table so that a lot of people could sit around it 
and yet servers could also get in and serve everyone. And the way that it would be set up would be, would be that the center of the horseshoe would be the host. And tradition sort of rose up around that, that the closer you sat to the host, the more important you were. And in fact, if you were really close to the host, if you were right beside the host, then you were very important because you could then even whisper things. You could have sort of your own conversation with the host instead of shouting across the room. You remember in the upper room when John lays his head on Jesus' breast? John is right there beside and they can even have this intimate conversation about who the betrayer is and the others aren't involved. So that's sort of what's, what's happening is that there's this hierarchy of who is considered the most distinguished guest, who are the richest, the wealthiest, who are the, the most important in the synagogue or in the society or in the culture. And Jesus has observed a lot of jockeying for position. He's observed maybe some people showed up really early so that they could take a seat near the top or some other people, maybe they... Uh, uh, maneuver themselves through the room to try to find the best seat that they could sit in. And they take the best seat that they can, hopefully endowing themselves with the highest honor. So Jesus observes this, and he has something to say about it. He says this, verse 8, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, so he changes now the scenario from just a regular Sabbath meal to a wedding feast, an even more important occasion in which the place that you took at the table was even more important than a Sabbath meal. When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. There's sort of the summary statement in the last sentence. If you exalt yourself, you'll be humbled. If you humble yourself, you'll be exalted. And in this, it sets the stage and the scenario of, of this jockeying for a good position. And he says a wise thing to do is to take the lowest position and then be moved up instead of taking the highest position and being moved down. So, um, the Pharisees were a people that we see them in the Gospels as, and we should be careful to note here, in the Gospels, they are illustrations of self-righteousness and hypocrisy. That's not to say that all the Pharisees were that way, not even in Jesus' day, particularly before Jesus' day. Um, there were a lot of spiritually commendable things about the group of people known as Pharisees. But in Jesus' day, in the Gospels, they are used almost exclusively as illustrations of self-righteousness and hypocrisy. And being as such, they really liked attention. So, Jesus describes for them a people who are vested in recognition by others, he describes a disastrous scenario. The scenario is, you come for a meal and you overplay your hand. You sit at a place in which you didn't warrant that place. Now someone more important than you comes and you suffer the shame and the disgrace of being downgraded in your seat. 
And he's teaching, of course, as he summarizes it. If you exalt yourself, you'll be humbled. If you humble yourself, you'll be exalted. So let's think for just a moment about that, and then we'll, we'll pull some things out of that. First of all, I want to ask the question, what if the Pharisees who heard that, what if not believing upon Jesus at all, not respecting Jesus at all, disagreeing with him and his teaching, what if they said to themselves, you know, he's got something there. I mean, he's right. Yeah, that would be a disaster. It is wiser to take the lower seat and be moved up. So in effect, Jesus could be helping them to be more self-righteous, right? I mean, because you, no one has to believe in Jesus to take and apply what he has said. And so that's a wise thing to do. So from that, I want to make two applications. And the first is, nowhere does Scripture protect itself from being misused. Have you noticed that, that that is true about Scripture, that Scripture leaves itself open to, to abuse in this same sort of way? Someone could take this passage and say, well, here's, here's a good idea to help me in my self-righteousness, to help me be noticed, because don't you love to get upgraded in your status, right? So take the lowest status and let people upgrade you. Scripture has a way of leaving itself open to abuse. Many passages, as you study your scriptures, you probably are like me, that many times you'll read that. That is so, I know that's not what it's saying, but it's so easy to misunderstand that. Why would God not say that differently? Why would he not say it in a way that makes misunderstanding it harder? You ever asked yourself that question? I have hundreds of times reminds us of the necessity of the Holy Spirit. It is only by the Holy Spirit that we properly discern His Scriptures. All of us know what it's like to have unbelievers or, or those people who care nothing about Jesus um, go to places like Matthew 7. Judge not lest you be judged. If you want to scream, read the rest of the passage. Or That's not what the... But that is... A fact of Scripture is that we have been given Scriptures that there is no supernatural force field around them that prevents their misuse and their abuse. So that's the one takeaway here is that easily Jesus' words could be misconstrued to actually be helpful in your efforts to be self-righteous. The other thing is, again, if Jesus were to say, okay, here's how you... Here's a wiser thing to do. Take the low place and be moved up. It reminds me of the fact that the most common way to conceal pride is with false humility, which is what that would, that would be. So it's false humility. I'll take the low position and let you move me up. Right? This, so it's false humility. That's the easiest way, the most common way to conceal pride. And most of us recognize that right away. We can conceal, and we do it ourselves. I, I find myself doing it sometimes. Um, we all know people that, that use that tactic quite a lot. They sort of put on this air of false humility or um, false self, uh, whatever, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, deprecation. I wanted to say deprecation. I knew, I knew that wasn't the word I was looking for. Yeah, so... It's put on this false air of self-deprecation. But it's all an effort to just be more prideful. 
uh, it, we recognize that. And, that. and that's what this would be here. So a couple of takeaways there. Jesus gives this parable that could be so easily misunderstood, but we know his meaning, of course, is encapsulated at the, at the end. Those who are exalted will be humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then he goes on from there. So he's kind of now insulted all of the invited guests. Now he's going to insult the host. So he said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you. You'll be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So he says to the host, looking at the people that you've invited, he, he, he's, he's, in essence, he's implying all these people have resources to repay you for what you've done for them. Maybe they're wealthy. Maybe they have social status. Maybe they uh, carry a lot of weight in the synagogue. And so they have societal or financial means to repay your honoring of them. So you really just honored yourself. You're honoring them so that they will honor you. You're loving yourself through them. You're honoring yourself through them. Jesus says, um, that's the same thing as exalting yourself. You're just using others to do it. So he says a better way is to honor those who have no ability to honor you back. Honor those, uh, invite those uh, who um, have no means, no physical, financial, no cultural, societal means of returning what you've done for them. So now he's insulted the guests, he's insulted the host. Jesus has a way uh, like I say, in the Gospels, he's he's at parties all the time, and he always seems to sort of leave everything in shambles. You know, he goes to a funeral and upsets everybody at the funeral. He goes to a wedding and makes everybody mad at the wedding. He's the party pooper. He, yeah, he's always there, but he's kind of, yeah, he's always throwing a wrench in everybody's good time. It seems like so he's done this. Um, but here's what I want to spend a little bit of time thinking through. I want to think through verse 11, and I want to think through verse 14. Verse 11, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Restated a different way in verse 14, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. What will you be repaid for? You will be repaid for honoring those who can't honor you. So you will, the implication is, be honored at the resurrection of the just. I don't think about that principle because it's all over the scriptures. This idea of the ultimate goal is our exaltation. It's found in more places than you can count. I'll put a few in your notes. First Peter 5, humble yourself before the Lord and He will exalt you at the right time. Or James, uh, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourself and He will exalt you. Or uh, Zephaniah 3.17 and 20. Um, there's scores of other places where the scriptures tell us. Humble yourself now. For the ultimate goal is your exaltation. And I want to encourage you to not try to spiritualize that. And say, oh, what it means is, you know, when I'm exalted, I'm going to throw my crowns at Jesus' feet. Right? And I know the scriptures talk about that. But I want to take the plain, the plain words of Scripture that are not found only here, but all over the New Testament. 
I want to take the plain reading that says, here is the ultimate goal, and there's a way of going about it. The Pharisees are doing it wrong. They are trying to exalt themselves in this life. They're trying to reach the same ultimate goal of exaltation. They're going about it the wrong way. But then Jesus says, here's the right way. The right way is to humble yourself. And then ultimately, there will come exaltation. And I don't know if you've ever struggled with that. I have. I've, I've wrestled with that. This idea that it just seems like it goes against the grain to think of a time in which we will be exalted and it won't be sort of this temporary exalting of us so that we then, as Paul says, cast our crowns at his feet and then, you know, yes, we will worship Christ for eternity. We will bow at his throne for eternity. But I would be taking a lot out of my Bible if I removed all the places where it told me that I will be exalted. So I want to think about that. I want to kind of wrestle with that a little bit. Some time ago, I read a book that changed, that revolutionized how I thought about that. I had been thinking about it and wrestling with it for a long time. And I read a book that um, nailed it. It's a book, it's a short little book I would highly recommend that you all read. It's called The Weight of Glory by C.S. Lewis. Be careful, there is there are at least three other books entitled The Weight of Glory. You all know who C.S. Lewis is. Make sure you're reading C.S. Lewis's. I have no idea what the other one says. <coughs> but it's called The Weight of Glory. And it's easy. It's, it's just a little over 200 pages. It's a collection of, I think, six essays. And one of the essays is the main one. It's called The Weight of Glory. So you can read it. You can probably sit down and read it in an hour or two. Um, but and I'm, in a few minutes, I'm going to read a, a lengthy section from this. And I'm going to apologize ahead of time for reading such a long section. But I think he says it a lot better than I can say it. And I think it really needs to be read in his words. But let me set the stage for what he's going to say. In the weight of glory, he's wrestling with heaven and what heaven will be like and how we as earthly creatures can know and relate to what's coming in the next life. And he begins by talking about how our desires here on earth are meaningful, and we shouldn't just attempt to quell our desires, but we should think well about our desires, what it is that we want. Uh, because the Christian doesn't just grit his teeth and, and push down his desires, but instead, Lewis will say, at, near the beginning he'll say, the, the problem with, with Christians is, is not that we want too much, it's, be, it's that we want too little, that we're too easily satisfied. God has designed us for an eternal satisfaction, a far greater satisfaction, and he wants us to pursue that with all we are. So instead of quashing your desires, instead, learn from your desires and feed them and grow them and redeem them. So that's kind of how he starts. And then he starts thinking about um, the world in which we live. And he has a hypothesis. His hypothesis is that it would be illogical for God to create a world in which there exist deep desires that aren't fulfilled. And he talks about animals. He talks about ducks. He says, how illogical would it be 
for a duck that craves water, how illogical for there to be ducks in a world with no water. So it only makes sense that if there's ducks, there has to be water to satisfy the desire that they're made to have. Or birds, here's birds that have to fly. And what kind of world would it be if there were birds but not air? That would be illogical. So God has created things with deep desires and he has provided the satisfaction for those desires. So then he goes on to say, what about us? Because he says, and I think he's right here, he says, none of our desires are truly satisfied here. They may be for periods of time, they may be for years or decades, but all of our deepest desires eventually, in some way or another, we find that what's here just doesn't quite get it. And so he says, as a philosopher, he says, the only conclusion I can come to is that if nothing in this world truly satisfies my desires, then I must have been created for a different world. See? And so he takes the deep desires of the human heart and says, here's a clue for us that helps us to understand what we were really made for. We have deep, universal human desires that this world cannot satisfy. And so therefore, that must mean that we were created for another world, which will satisfy. So taking that as sort of the background, taking that, let me read to us uh, from, um, I'm going to read, he begins by saying, he says this, he says in the next life, he identifies five things that the scriptures promise us in the next life. He says, first, it promises us that we shall be with Christ. Secondly, it promises us that we shall be like Christ. Thirdly, he says, uh, with an enormous wealth of imagery in the scriptures, it tells us that we shall have glory. And that's where he's going to focus right now. Fourthly, he says, we shall in some sense be fed or feasted or entertained. And then lastly, he says that we shall have some sort of official position in the universe, ruling cities, judging angels, whatever. Okay. So among the five things that Scripture talks about, it repeatedly talks about a glory that's ours, that will be ours. So now, uh, taking that thread, um, he says this. He says, uh, I turn next to the idea of glory. There is no getting away from the fact that this idea is very prominent in the New Testament and in the early Christian writings. Salvation is constantly associated with palms and crowns and white robes and thrones and splendor like the sun and stars. All this makes no immediate appeal to me at all, and in that respect I fancy I am a typical modern. Glory suggests two ideas to me. He says, um, glory suggests two ideas of, to me of which one seems wicked and the other ridiculous. Either glory means to me fame or it means luminosity, this idea of being luminant. Now, he's going to talk about luminosity later. We won't get there. We're going to talk about the first idea. So he says it either means fame or some idea of light, emitting light or being luminous. As for the first, since to be famous means to be better known than other people, the desire for fame appears to me as a competitive passion and therefore of hell rather than heaven. As for the second, who wishes to become some kind of electric light bulb? He'll talk about that later. When I began to look at this matter, I was shocked to find such different Christians as Milton, Johnson, and Thomas Aquinas taking heavenly glory quite frankly or literally 
quite literally in the sense of fame or good report. But not fame conferred by our fellow creatures, fame with God, approval or, I might say, appreciation by God. And then when I had thought it over, I saw that this view was scriptural. Nothing can eliminate from the parable the divine accolade, well done, thou good and faithful servant. With that, a good deal of what I had been thinking all my life fell down like a house of cards. I suddenly remembered that no one can enter heaven except as a child. And nothing is so obvious in a child as its great and undisguised pleasure in being praised. Let me read that sentence again. Nothing is so obvious in a child as its great and undisguised pleasure in being praised. Not only in a child either, but even in a dog or a horse. Apparently what I had mistaken for humility had all these years prevented me from understanding what is in fact the humblest and the most childlike, the most creaturely of pleasures. Nay, the specific pleasure of the inferior. The pleasure of a beast before men, a child before its father, a pupil before his teacher, a creature before its creator. The most basic of pleasures, he says, is for the inferior to be praised by his superior. I am not forgetting how horribly this most innocent desire is parodied in our human ambitions, or how very quickly in my own experience the lawful pleasure of praise from those whom it was my duty to please turns into the deadly poison of self-admiration. So he's going to make a distinction between self-admiration and the joy that we receive from praise from our superior, capital S. But I thought I could detect a moment, a very, very short moment before this happened, during which the satisfaction of having pleased those whom I rightly loved and rightly feared was pure. And that is enough to raise our thoughts to what may happen when the redeemed soul, beyond all hope and nearly beyond belief, learns at last that she has pleased him whom she was created to please. There will be no room for vanity then. She will be free from the miserable illusion that it is her doing. With no taint of what we should now call self-approval, she will most innocently rejoice in the thing that God has made her to be and the moment which heals her old inferiority complex forever will also drown her pride deeper than, the, than Prospero's book. Perfect humility dispenses with modesty. In other words, when sin is eradicated, there's no more need for modesty. Perfect humility dispenses with modesty. If God is satisfied with the work, the work may be satisfied with itself. It is not for her to bandy compliments with her sovereign. I can imagine someone saying that he dislikes my idea of heaven as a place where we are patted on the back. But proud misunderstanding is behind that dislike. In the end, that face, face is capitalized, in the end, that face, which is the delight or the terror of the universe, must be turned upon each of us, either with one expression or the other, either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised. I read in a periodical the other day that the fundamental thing is how we think of God. By God himself, it is not. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. 
Indeed, how we think of him is of no importance except insofar as it is related to how he thinks of us. It is written that we shall stand before him, shall appear, we shall be inspected. The promise of glory is the promise almost incredible and the only promise by the work of Christ that some of us, that any of us who really chooses, shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, shall please God. <coughs> to please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in, as an artist delights in his work or in a son. It seems impossible. A weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain. But so it is. And then I'll finish this by just reading one more sentence. Glory as Christianity teaches me to hope for it turns out to satisfy my original desire and indeed to reveal an element in that desire which I had not noticed. So here's what he says. Our deepest desires say something about our Creator, about how He made us, and about what our next life will be like. And the deepest of all human desires is the desire to be praised, to be applauded, to be recognized, to be honored, to be given glory as the inferior from the superior. He says nothing will, will give us the same joy as that pure, selfless receiving of recognition from the superior. Recognize, the superior recognizing that the inferior pleases me. He says that brings joy inexpressible. And far from being, being prideful, that's actually the most humble that we can be. He says pride comes in as we try to create that honoring ourselves, And we try to find it in things other than God. And so we try to find honor from people. And we try to create honor by jockeying for position at the table or inviting guests that can return the honor to us. We pervert it. And we turn a good thing into an evil thing. But he says aside from that, the purest form of desiring praise from our Maker, far from being prideful, is childlike humility. And so from that, he, he concludes that the Scriptures mean exactly what they say. That a big component of our eternal existence will be basking in the praise and recognition and honor given to us by the one that we were created to desire his praise and his honor. Now, if you've never heard that before, again, I wrestled with this for a long time. So if you've never heard that and you are just now kind of wrestling with that, then you may want to think on this and decide if you really follow what Lewis is saying, search the scriptures, pray it through. But if that is something that <coughs> resonates in your heart, then here's the takeaway is that Latch on to that, this idea that instead of having to fight against our desire to want praise, we don't fight against it, we redeem it. And we recognize 
that the only praise that will satisfy us is praise from our maker. He's the one that we were made to be praised by. And so all of the false praise will not satisfy. So instead, latch on to this idea that he will one day exalt us and confer upon us the, the exaltation of well done, good and faithful servant. And it won't be a momentary thing. It will be an eternity of basking in the praise of the one that we were made to be praised by. And I'll, I will tell you, there is no greater motivator, there's, there's no greater energizer for the striving for holiness. Remember that's what we talked about last week. Jesus says, strive, agonize to enter through the narrow door. There's no greater energizer for me than meditating on the thought of receiving praise, honor, and glory from the one I was created to receive it from. Now, again, you may have to wrestle with some of that. You may not agree with all of it. You may want to read Lewis for yourself. You may want to search the scriptures and pray through that for yourself. But I think he's on to something. The deepest, most universal human desires point us to our Creator. So in your notes, I put—I think I summarized that in five or six points. You can reflect on that. Um, now quickly, I'll, I'll, let's move on to the third parable. Jesus has now insulted the guests. He's insulted the host. You ever had those awkward moments where somebody says something really in your face and they, you know, they, they don't disguise what they're thinking and they sort of tell everybody in the room what they think of them and everybody's like, okay, right? And, you know, there's this awkward moment. And how do you get past those awkward moments? You say something that everyone in the room will agree with, right? That's the way to get past awkward moments is to say something so basic that nobody will disagree with what you say. And that's what happens right now. When one of those who reclined at the table heard him say these things, he said to him, okay, uh, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God, right? Who can disagree with that? He's trying to sort of smooth this over and get the conversation going in a different direction. So blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. However, it backfires. Jesus doesn't let him off the hook. Jesus says, okay, you say blessed is everyone who eat, will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Number one, Jesus is going to say in this parable, he's going to say, that statement comes with an implication. It implies that you're one of them. So let's see. Let's see if you are one of them. And then secondly, Jesus is going to say, through the parable, he's going to say, um, let's also see if you really believe what you just said. Because you just said that blessed is everyone who is in the kingdom of God. Now I'm going to describe to you who is in the kingdom of God and see if you really think they're blessed. Okay. So here comes the parable. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And the time for the banquet, uh, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everyone, everything's now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a field and I must go see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I bought a yoke of oxen. I must go examine them. Please have me excused. Another said, I married a wife. Therefore, I cannot come. I just said laugh when I read this. In my short time, I've not been in ministry as long as so many, but even the nine or ten years that I've been, oh my word, the excuses that, that I have heard from people that, oh, it's just um, crazy sometimes. I'll tell you the best one. 
because I'm, I'm sure you want to hear the best one. Um, and I'll say this because it doesn't. Nobody in the room knows this person. Doesn't apply to anybody in the room. Um, I once knew a person who was a pretty faithful church attender, and um, one week he he had some tree work done at his house, and the tree work people didn't finish by the end of the week, and so they asked the person if they could leave their equipment trailer at his house because they'd come back Monday and finish. Now, an equipment trailer, they were not talking about a landscape trailer. We're talking about a trailer that a dump truck pulls. They left at this person's house. We're coming back Monday to finish. The person actually didn't go to church because they thought they should stay home just to make sure that the trailer wasn't stolen on Sunday. Just say you don't want to come. Just So anyway, I hear these excuses. I, Jesus, he must be telling this sort of with a smirk on his face. I just bought a field and I must go inspect it. I think you do that before you buy the field. I just bought the yoke of oxen. I need to go look at them. I think you looked at them before you bought them. That's why you bought them. You can't use those oxen today anyway. It's the Sabbath, right? Now, the third excuse, maybe there's something there. Just yeah, got man. married. You should have looked at her. Should have respected her. So, the idea behind these crazy excuses is this is an illustration of where their treasure is. Jesus is telling them a parable about the kingdom of God. And obviously, these people have a treasure that's not the kingdom of God. Their treasure is a field or oxen or a wife or whatever it may be. So, these crazy excuses. Um, verse 21, so the servant came and reported these things to his master, and the master of the house came, became angry, of course, and said to his servants, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city, bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, sir, we've already done that, but there's still more room. And the master said to the servant, go to the highways and hedges and compel people. In my Bible, I circled that word compel. Compel people to come in, that my house may be filled for I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. So blessed are those who eat bread in the kingdom of God. Let me tell you what who they are. And then you can ask yourself if you're one of them. Or if you really think that that's a blessing. Because the people in the kingdom of God are the lame and the crippled. They are the broken people. Two things I take away from this parable. One, the kingdom of God will be filled and two, it will be filled with broken people. It won't be filled with the proud, those who are, as Jesus will say, he didn't come for the righteous. He didn't come for the healthy. He came for the sick. In other words, he came for those who know of their brokenness. And their brokenness will not compel them to seek the honor of others at the, t at the head of the table or, or seek the honor of others through this reciprocation of of invites to parties, but instead their brokenness will, as is coming up real quickly in Luke's gospel, will be like the tax collector who beat his breast and said, Sinner, thy mercy is what I need. J.C. Ryle said this. He said, The key to humility is knowledge. Knowledge of your spiritual lameness, of your spiritual crippledness, of your spiritual brokenness, true knowledge 
of our brokenness before the Savior is something that that pride cannot survive. That humility will be fed by that. I think he has a point there. So, here's our takeaways from this passage. The kingdom of heaven will be filled with broken people. The scriptures can be easily twisted and misused and misunderstood. And lastly, the promise of exaltation is not something for us to um, spiritualize or mysticize into something that it doesn't plainly mean. The plain meaning is there is a satisfaction for the deepest, most universal human desire, and that is the desire to be praised by our Maker. And that, sat, that desire will be satisfied till our cups overflow in eternity. And that is something to latch on to and hold on to and far from denying, uh, instead use as motivation for our striving for holiness. I'll pray and um, we can all brace ourselves for the big rush back in that'll come in just a moment. Pray with me now. Gracious, merciful Father, how wise a God are you and how loving and considerate to create us with a need to not just to know you, but to know that we please you. Like a work of art that the artist has created, we please our maker. What an incredible thought. Often as I look at my life and my choices and the words that come out of my mouth and the thoughts that go between my ears, sometimes I think, how could I possibly please a holy God? And that returns me back once again to the cross that covers all of that. And not just covers it, but replaces it with the righteous thoughts, the righteous actions, and the righteous words of Jesus Christ, as His righteousness is mine by faith. We hope you enjoyed this podcasted message from the Garden Fellowship. The purpose of the Garden Fellowship Church is to make disciples of Jesus Christ through loving God, loving each other, and loving our community. We hope you were blessed by this message. You can learn more about our church by visiting our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Garden Fellowship or by visiting our website at gardenfellowship.org.